Welcome to the American Railroading Podcast, brought to you by the Revolution Rail Group, live from the great state of Texas. We'll discuss a wide range of topics related to the railroad industry, from regulatory items and the challenges our industry faces, to passenger rail excursions, and recognizing U.S. Armed Forces veterans in our industry. Join us as we educate, entertain, and explore the world of American railroading. Here's your host, industry veteran, Don Walsh. Well, hey, welcome everybody to the American Railroading Podcast. I am indeed your host, Don Walsh, President and CEO of the Revolution Rail Group, the anchor sponsor for the American Railroading Podcast. And I want to start out today by saying thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you that listened, that watched, that downloaded and subscribed to episode one. Folks, I can't thank you enough. Due to all of your love and showing love for our episode, we have skyrocketed to just within the top 10% of podcasts in the first week of that episode release, which is absolutely incredible. So thank you so much. We're glad to have you aboard, and we're going to continue to provide you with quality content that you're going to enjoy episode after episode. And we're going to do that starting today. We have some information we want to share with you about railroad rail car maintenance and technology now there's no way we're going to get through all of that today obviously it's going to take multiple episodes probably a couple years of episodes to get through all of that but we're just going to touch on some of it today to share a little bit with you and we'll hopefully enlighten you in some things we're going to focus on one particular type of inspection uh, in just a few minutes so rail car maintenance providers are considered a part of the railway supply segment of the industry. So last week, a group uh, called Oxford Economics uh, hosted a webinar sponsored by the Railway Supply Institute on April 5th, where they said railway supply industry supports 240,000 direct jobs. And for every one job of those 240,000 jobs, they create another 1.9 jobs in other industries, which is absolutely amazing. So I wanted to share that because, folks, there's a lot of people out there working really hard to make sure that the rail cars and their components are safe, that they are compliant and they're functioning as designed. And speaking of the rail cars themselves, there are approximately 1.6 million rail cars in the United States, most of which are in utilization. I say that because... They, they, they could be in storage somewhere, right? And typically there's about 80% cars in utilization. The remainder are in storage. But recently I can tell you as a rail car broker who's helping people to find rail cars for sale or lease, there's not that many out there available right now. So the majority of rail cars are in utilization and they could need maintenance at any time. Now it doesn't have to be anything severe. It could simply be a, a $2 decal. Of course, it's more than $2, but it could be a decal on the side of the car that got obliterated by a tree branch in transit. And those things have to be legible at all times. So they could be sent in for that. Uh, it could be a brake shoe, which it, it doesn't mean that the brake shoe is broken or missing. It's just condemnable. So we're regularly, we're very highly regulated on what is allowable. So if the brake shoe isn't thick enough, that could be simply enough to say, hey, we got to pull that car aside and have it repaired by a certified repair facility. So we have what we call, we would call bad order. So a bad order is when something is found in the car and has to be home shopped for repair. We also have rail car owners and fleet managers who do periodic maintenance. So it's scheduled maintenance, which is great. We want them to do that, right? So it could be based on mileage. It could be based on how many loads they've had. There's different ways of doing that. And then we have regulatory compliance where things have to be brought into shop to be looked at periodically to make sure that they're still suitable for interchange. So that a perfect example of that would be tank cars. So we have what's called HM216B, which is a regulation, a regulatory compliance inspection 
For tank cars, they have to be brought in for general purpose, like for a corn syrup car every 10 years to be reviewed. And for a pressure car, like an LPG car, every five years to be reviewed. So regardless of why a rail car is being brought in, whether it's a bad order, whether it's periodic inspection for uh, the car owner maintenance that they've scheduled, or whether it's regulatory compliance, it takes an individual to go out there and inspect these rail cars, and they have to be extremely knowledgeable of the regulations to do that. So you've got information that they have to review, like the Association of American Railroads has a field manual, okay? And that field manual, not to be blasphemous, but is essentially the Bible that we look at, right? So it's literally 700 plus pages of information, and it's extremely detailed. So you have information about every single task that you could do. There's a job code for every single task that you could do. There's Y-made codes, qualifiers, car condition codes, all in Rule 83. And then it all has to be done in a certain format called the Billing Repair Card, the BRC. So there's so much that that person has to understand. Then there's there's books from the FRA you have to have on hand. There's books from the Department of Transportation, from FEMSA, from the Bureau of Explosives. And then each and every car owner could have a specific um, specific type of um, scope of work that they want you to follow for a car type that they own or a service that their cars happen to be in. So you have to be aware of all of those things. And I say all that because it's not as easy as it looks. And I am a living and perfect example of that. So I'm going to poke a little fun at myself here, if that's all right with everybody. Um, I'm not above that. I make mistakes. And I walked into this industry. We talked about it in the first episode where I was a teenager and I went into repair, a repair shop in Chicago doing summer work. And um, But that wasn't really rail car repair. I was cleaning up. I was helping up around the shop and that. But when I was in my mid-20s, which was just a couple of years ago, of course, I was offered an opportunity to do a management candidate um, training group. And I was one of three people that was brought into this group. And I said, absolutely, sign me up. And for any company that doesn't do management candidate training, I, I really encourage you to do so, to find a way to create a program like that. It is a, it is a great program for, to bring people up through the ranks that come up from the ground floor to teach them how to not only be a leader in the industry, but to each aspect of the rail car repair industry um, is related to the shops or whatever business you're in. And it's a, it's a good uh, level way to level the playing field for folks that don't have a college degree. And even for those that do have a college degree, it allows them exposure to the industry without just subjecting them to it and throwing them into it. So I'll get off my soapbox there, but I think that management candidate programs are amazing. So the first opportunity for me in the management candidate program was at a facility 18 hours away from home. Never been out there before, never met the folks before. So I drove 18 hours. I get out there, I get my hotel room, and the next morning we started before dawn. And I went and I introduced myself. So I, I get in and it's, it's dark. It, the sun hadn't come up yet. And the assistant plant manager introduces himself to me and kind of looks me up and down like, who is this kid? Because <laughs> I looked like I was 12. You know, I looked like a child. And I thought I knew everything. I thought I had it all figured out, as I'm sure we all did in our 20s. And he said, we're going to start you out with rail car inspection. I said, OK, great. So he walks me to the inspector's uh, offices. Now, for those of you in the industry or in any related industry, you understand that we repurpose things. So when it comes to offices, we don't necessarily go out and buy some new Connex trailer. We repurpose boxcars and things like that, whether it's for parts storage or whether it's for uh, an office, in this case, for inspection. So if you can picture this, the sun hasn't come up yet. I'm barely awake. I don't know any of these folks. They don't know me. I'm getting walked out to this boxcar <laughs> that looks like it's been around for 100 years. They open the doors. 
and it's full of wood paneling like you'd see in your grandma's basement in 1980-something. There is a light, but it's barely on. There's a, a desk in front of me that's empty, um, which I'm assuming is for me. There are bookshelves full of books all around, um, which I spoke about a minute ago. I mean, you literally have to have a library to do this job. And to the left is a desk with a gentleman sitting in it that looks like he just walked out of the woods somewhere. Huge man, big old beard and mustache. Scared me to death. And if you're listening, Mike, I love you. You know I do. But you scared me. And and he just looks at me shaking his head like, what are we going to do with this kid? You know, I said, hey, I'm here to help. Right. I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to learn. So he stands up and he hands me a notepad, a blank notepad and a pencil and says, here, follow me. He opens up the door to the boxcar and outside the door was a hopper car because we had an inbound track that ran adjacent to the inspection trailer. He said, I want you to go inspect that hopper car. I said, okay, how hard can that be? I mean, you know, I'm mechanically inclined. I've worked around construction and that with my family as a kid. I've, I've changed engines and transmissions out with my dad. Uh, you know, as a young kid, of course, that means holding the flashlight. And those of you who've done it for your dad, you know what I'm saying. So <laughs> I go and I, I walk around this hopper car and I'm telling you, I had it all figured out, right? I walk around. I probably spent 20 minutes, 30 minutes looking at this thing. And I get done, and I I get back in the office, and I hand him a blank sheet of paper. And I say, it looks great. It's good to go. He shakes his head, and he had two words he would typically say. Not even words, but sounds that he would utter. One was, "Mm mm-hmm, and the other one was, "Mm." (laughs) mm-hmm. So he looks at me shakes his head and says, "Mm," and walks out the door with the pad and paper, doesn't say another word to me. I'm thinking, oh God, he's mad at me. Uh, He's, (laughs) I don't know what he's going to do, but he's mad at me. So I sat in there, I started going through the field manual, making notes, trying to learn things. He comes back after about 45 minutes and he has four pages worth of condemnable items on there from the same hopper car I just looked at that I found nothing wrong with. He found four pages and that's because he understood the rules and regulations. He understood the requirements of the customers. And I had no idea. I, I, was, I, I learned that day I knew nothing. And I had a lot to learn. I had a long way to go. And thank God he was in my life because he taught me an awful lot, as, as has everyone along my path. Um, so it's, it's not as easy as it looks, folks. And the next question is then, you know, okay, so we have these folks in the field that are highly trained and there's a process when a car gets to a shop that ensures its quality when it goes out the door and then it's suitable for interchange. But what happens when the car is in interchange? What happens when it's in transit at 55 miles an hour across 140,000 miles of track in the United States? So that leads me to wanting to focus today on wheel bearings. The reason I want to focus on wheel bearings today is because the derailment that happened recently in East Palestine, Ohio, on February 3rd was said to have been related to a wheel bearing failure. And it, was ha- it happened in transit, right? So how do, we, how do we understand and monitor the health and integrity of wheel bearings while they're, while they're moving? With that said, I want to introduce our guest today who's going to talk to us about all that and more and in, including technology, where it's at today, and where it's going to go, and where it should go. Our guest today is Byron Porter. He's the founder and CCO of Hum Industrial Technology, based out of St. Louis, Missouri, which was founded in 2019, has a focus on advanced wireless technology and predictive analytics in the railway supply chain. Byron lives in St. Louis currently with his wife, Emma, and their three boys. 
His background, he has a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical Engineering from BYU and a Master's of Business Administration degree from Washington University, St. Louis, Olin Business School. His background also includes roles with ADM, which is Archer Daniels Midland. I always get that wrong, so I'm very proud of myself right now. (laughs) His roles were engineering superintendent, where he was a global subject matter expert for the company on rail car loading optimization and soy processing technology. He was also a plant engineer, production engineer, and hum industrial technology recently on March 16th, 2023, submitted a 17-page report to the Federal Railroad Administration giving their perspective on the history, the benefits, and flaws of wayside detection currently used in North America. So who better to talk to right now, Byron? So welcome to the American Railroading Podcast. Thanks, Don. Appreciate that. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, and thanks for joining us. So I've got to ask, what made you decide to get into the railroad industry in the first place, being a chemical engineer? <laughs> well, those degrees sound nice. I was never the academic type. I couldn't get out of school fast enough. So I, I kind of was chuckling that I actually even have those degrees. I guess. My, my wife's a former student, but I have one. But I got, into, uh, I got into the rail industry by accident, like I think a lot of people do, right? At ADM, my time was, you know, I hired on as an engineer, a lot of processing engineering done production engineering just to try to make the plants run better. well there's a big part of that and that's what comes in how, how raw materials come in and how finished products leave the plant right and that happens on rail through a, a, a giant processor like like ADM 80% of my time though, was really focused in the plant I got to know uh, they, they have a phenomenal you talk about management training program they didn't have a formal one in ADM but had something just as good or better where they put you out of the plant from day one and taught you how to operate it, and you were actually operating it on day shift or night shift. That got me into the rail yard, too, in the middle of the night in those cold Illinois winters and trying to deal with road switches and the like. And so I kind of learned rail from that side, but really from, from the shippers end. And what, you know, I, I worked with phenomenal, they talked about, you know, uh, this guy Mike, uh, who mentored you and trained you. There are six guys at the plant who basically walked out of high school and walked into the plant when they were 18 years old. And they've been there for 40-some years. Just you know, seen everything, done everything, could handle anything. And the one thing that always got me was the, the guy who was really kind of in charge of the rail operations. We'd have so many issues with, you know, trains that didn't show up on time, didn't get empties, couldn't get uh, loads pulled. And it would just destroy kind of the rest of our production schedule we try to do. And he and everyone else would just, you know, rail's going to do what rail's going to do. And then I was just stuck in the back of my mind. And then that, and, you know, we had Aiden was a phenomenal company to work for. Um, 30,000 employees. We had three fake alleys one year. Two of those happened in the rail yard. And uh, as I, after I left ADM and decided to go pursue my MBA and got caught to speed on what technology was there, those two things, the, the safety and the efficiency aspect of, of rail could be done to improve it, kind of merged with the technology, and, and that was kind of the creation of Pump. So, you know, we, we set out back in 2019 using technology, particularly wireless sensors, to, to make rail smarter and safer. Uh, and then we've been doing that ever since. That's great. 
Yeah, absolutely. And not everyone listening or watching has rail background. So if you could, could you paint a picture for us of what a wheel bearing is and how it functions? I know that people have wheel bearings in their cars. People have wheel bearings in their bicycles at home. Is it similar? Is it different? How do they, how do they operate in a rail car? Yeah, so and it's, it's really the same principle. You know, rail car bearings are big, uh, especially compared to the environment I came from. Um, certainly like very on auto bearing, you know, it's six inches in the diameter, it's, it's, it's large. Um, but bearing, uh, rail car bearing, like any other bearing, is just a way of trying to transfer uh, a static or a dynamic load uh, to a rotating piece, right? And doing that in as frictionless way as possible, right? Because that's where your, the, the engineering losses come in and, and you, you, lose, um, you lose efficiency in your in the mechanical system that way. So they're highly, highly engineered pieces. You know, the tapered roller bearings used in, in rail car bearings have been around since the, the 50s. Um, uh, there's a lot of, lot of engineering work that, that goes into it, but it's all in an effort to just reduce as much friction and, and loss in the system as possible to allow for, you know, a nice, nice smooth ride. And old school rail car wheel bearings that, I saw some of when I first started were considering considered hot boxes where you would literally and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you would literally open up the hatch on the side of the wheel bearing and put lubrication in there. Um, but obviously things have come a long way since then. So how are today's wheel bearings different than the old school hot boxes? Yeah. Yeah. So the old school hot boxes, um, and you can still find these, uh, you see a lot of cabooses parked in random places. You know, I think I was in Eastern Tennessee one time. I saw some old caboose that was parked outside a restaurant or a cafe somewhere. And it had the old bogey systems and it had the old their truck systems and it had, had these, these boxes, right? And that's literally what it was. So earlier bearings, you had a brass sleeve that, that uh, rotated and had a little wick. And it's, it's you know, it's similar in, in conveyor parts to, to mortal bath guard where it, as the rotating piece comes around, uh, it, it keeps lubricating uh, the component. Uh, that's rotating. So you have a box to house it all in. And uh, back in the day, and I think maybe Hunter Harrison even started off uh, as, as one of these guys, when you'd have oil in, who would go as the, the cars in the yard and they would just go and top off oil in all the boxes. Well, you can imagine this is a problem if, for whatever reason, that, that box doesn't you know stay full of oil. And, and you have, or if you have a leak in the box somewhere and the oil spills out, then you've got a metal on metal. Uh, uh, rotation and you know obviously high friction and if you've got you know residual oil in the box that's a great thing to, to light up and that's where you term a hot box uh, and you can see those on fire and, and, and black right so transition that then to, to the tapered roller bearing where you have a completely enclosed uh, bearing that's slipped onto to the end of an axle uh, and everything's kind of internal it's packed with grease it's sealed, and that's really kind of the modern bearing style. That's you don't want to open it up when you have an open bearing like like the old hot boxes, dust, sand, dirt. I mean, uh, generally today in modern kind of liability programs, this is done in like a clean room environment, not quite like you know a, a semiconductor fab, but you, you you try to minimize the particulate to get in there because that that all starts to create friction and rubbing and wearing down the surface and premature premature failure. So everything's all self-contained. Um, and uh, mounts it onto, onto the end of the axle. So it's a significant improvement from the old days, for sure. 
Yeah. And so in a perfect world, how long would the average wheel bearing last or how should how long should it last? Yeah. So some heuristics, I guess, are um, bearings will last uh, probably are designed for one to 1.2 million miles. Okay. So you contrast that with, you know, for, for example, you contrast that with a rail car wheel. Uh, those are typically depends on a lot of factors, right? In Eastern versus Western curves versus, versus uh, straights. Uh, on, the, on the track, and those can last anywhere, say, 250 to 350,000 miles. This is all, you know, statistical averages, right? I think maybe, maybe the L10 lack of the bearings is up there to 1.2 million, million miles, so something can last you know, far, far longer than that. Okay, and there's different ways that a wheel bearing can fail, I would assume, and could you walk us through the most common types of failure and give a brief description of those? Yeah, certainly, certainly different different ways. I think uh, you know if if there's water ingress, uh, maybe it's Hurricane Harvey, uh, the one that came through uh, through Texas, and you had flooding everywhere, right? If you get water into into the rail car bearing, that starts to eat and you start to develop failure type called water edge bearing. Um, that's generally how that starts, but uh, more more common probably are, are the, the spalls uh, that, that happen. That really is you take a, a, a bearing and you know looks maybe looks great, but obviously there's imperfections. It's not perfectly cast material uh, or with how with how the bearings made. So you might have subsurface cracks, uh, things that happen under underneath the surface. That over time, enough you know loading and, and unloading of that bearing and rotation. That eventually causes that to, to stress and to break, and so then you start to get what's called a spall. Right? You have a piece of the material of the surface of the bearing that basically flakes off. Uh, not a big deal. It's a, once it first happens, that that piece of material then kind of gets uh, you know uh, ground up or, or entrained into grease, and life goes on. Right? But now you've got a weak spot. So instead of having a nice, perfectly smooth surface, you then have a rough spot. And every time it goes to that loaded zone. Right, it's it's going to stress the bearing differently, and then those subsurface cracks are going to grow, more spalling is going to occur until eventually you have, uh, you know, a, a large amount of damage around around the, the surface uh, of the bearing. You have a lot of that material that doesn't have any place to go. Right, it's, it's all a closed system. That material then starts to, you know, I call it loose change. You get enough loose change rather than around in there, then you do start to see the kind of metal on metal interaction uh, and, and that breaks in friction and causes the bearing to heat up. And that's where it's something like an East Palestinian a hot, a burnt off journal or a wheel bearing failure, that 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 end of the axle now or the journal is now so hot that it's able to to then cause that to, to break. And that's unbelievable to me. We'll talk about that in a little bit here as how that exactly happened. But that's mind-blowing that it can get that hot. And, and you think about this too, right? This is this is a six-inch diameter axle. This isn't like a little stick or anything. This is this is some sizable mass right there. But you also have 143 tons sitting on that, rotating, you know, up to you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. That's some considerable force and torque that's applied to that. Uh, so the magnitude of this, I don't want to, you know, it's one thing I'm talking about a little car, you know, wheel bearing or, or a, a uh, pillow block bearing, bear and plane. Um, these are, the magnitude and size of this is, is usually quite a bit larger than generally find, especially at the volume out there. As you said, 1.6 million rail cars. So this is, a, this is kind of the, the, the mega size 
uh, uh, application for, for some of these bearings. Absolutely. And we talked about the speed that a train moves at. So they're averaging 55 miles an hour. So clearly you or I can't stand there and visually inspect these things, every single one of them as they roll by. So technology must play a part in monitoring and reporting the bearing health and integrity um, along the 140,000 miles of railroad. And I think it's 623 railroads that operate on them. One of the primary methods uh, used today are wayside detectors. And it's my understanding there's two basically different types standardized of wayside detectors. Can you take a moment and just talk about the two different types? Yeah, yeah. So uh, on a bearing, yeah, so like, you know, from your background being, being a, a car inspector, right, there's, once you, you create that closed system um, and that bearing, and you don't want to open it up because you don't want to introduce any particulate matter or anything to degrade the bearing. Um, there's no way of telling what you got under the hood until you open it up, really, right? You can spin that thing, but it's a lot different spinning it by hand when it's unloaded versus spinning it when it's fully loaded 143 tons at, you know, 60 miles an hour, 55 miles an hour, right? So there's no great way to really inspect it unless the bearing is completely shot. Then maybe you'll start to start to hear something, but it really shouldn't be in service at that point if you can, you know, here. And, and we've heard of, you know, there's there's people who try their best to figure it out. One one short line up, they had a, a hot bearing derailment, and they spent about thirty five thousand bucks to go through their entire fleet and roll every bearing by hand. And they said we didn't learn a darn thing. So visual inspection, uh, there's a lot of things you can do with the on a car to to really identify defects. You cannot do that with bearings. Uh, so putting putting that out there for what it's worth. Now, the two methods for trying to identify bearing failure in the industry for the past seven years uh, have been through temperature and through acoustics or vibration. Temperature going back to the 40s, hot box detectors, the idea of using infrared uh, to, to scan thermally the, the surface of the bearing, and then between that and comparing it to, to various methods to, to ambient or to the other bearing on the axle, trying to determine if you have an outlier, if you have something that's heating up. And, and East Palestine around is a perfect example of that. Past three hot box detectors, the, the temperature was climbing from that. The system performed as it should have uh, in, in that respect. But you're really only telling what the temperature is. Um, temperature is a, a late stage indicator of a bearing failure, right? So you go back to when we talked about and you first start to have those spalls and you start to get more material and, and grease and train in the grease until you have friction uh, from, from all that interaction really start to increase the heat inside the bearing. You can't detect that damage. So the damage has to progress enough for a, a temperature uh, indication to, to really kind of make itself known. Um, so it's kind of a last ditch effort and it's been very effective, right? You know, going back to the 1980s deregulation and as more and more box detectors got put out in the national network. Now we have more than 6,000 of them. Um, they're good at spotting 99.5% of bearing uh, failures, right? Um, so they've, they've, they've certainly been effective at doing that and taking out a lot of worse cases and really helping manufacturers even improve some defects that were created while those earlier developments uh, and failures. Now, in contrast now with an acoustic bearing detector, an acoustic bearing detector, commonly known as a, a, or sold under the name of TADS or rail band, a couple brand names, you have a microphone array that's set right next to the rail track. 
And as the, the train passes by, those microphones pick up on the sounds that, that the train emits. Uh, and then through a, a number of algorithms and a whole lot of signal processing to, to filter out all the noise, uh, they then are able to identify the you know, magnitude, the frequency of, of particular components like the cup, the cone, the rollers, the bearing, and assign you know, the conditions of uh, severity to those. Those have really only been around since the, the late 90s, and there's about 39 of those out in, um, out in service in North America, although others uh, around the world. So those are the two basic types, two basic flavors. Uh, the acoustic variant detector obviously gets closer to identifying damage before it occurs or before it becomes catastrophic because it's able to, to pick up earlier and earlier signs of, of uh, damage based on, on the vibration. Okay. And of those two, it sounds like from the research that you've done and some research I did as well, that the hotbox detectors are the most common type. Would that be correct? Correct. correct. And you already talked about how they functioned. So... Do they monitor only the wheel bearings, or do the wayside detectors monitor other things as well? Yeah, they're primarily just for just for bearings. Uh, I I could be wrong. Spoken with people who use and make acoustic bearing detectors. Uh, generally, they have to to uh, they, they may have some additional uh, components to the installation site, like a wild detector, wheel impact load detector. But uh, acoustically, I don't think anyone's really monitoring anything but bearings uh, in the industry. So when an alert is sounded, how is that alert um, sent out? And what is the threshold that creates that alert to be sent with a hotbox detector? Yeah, so typical, um, and it's, it, as, as it's been made known or, or kind of well hashed out in the press, right, uh, it's different relative to the railroad. Typically, it's, uh, an alert is sounded when it's 170 degrees above ambient for a hotbox detector. Or I believe it's it's a 95 degree differential between ends of the axle bearings uh, on on the same axle. Uh, that's going to cause an alert to, to then be sent to the locomotive cab. Okay. Can are there be other factors that affect the the detection? So can weather be a factor? Can um, a false alert be sent be, as a result of weather? Whether it's too hot. I mean, it gets awfully hot here in Texas. So could that impact um, the temperature and send a false alert? Yeah, so there's a number of ways that false alerts can be created, both for hotbox detectors and acoustic brain detectors. Something even as, as simple as sunlight uh, on, on uh, hotbox detectors uh, can cause it to, to give out false alerts. Uh, hotbox detectors also need to be calibrated, um, so they have to be inspected. Some of them are inspected monthly, some of them are, are inspected more on, on a condition-based uh, basis when they start to see the temperature walking. Uh, but they do require some kind of continual maintenance to, to make sure that they're working properly. I think that newer hotbox detectors, some what they call multi-scan, where they use uh, eight different uh, readings or, or uh, scan the bearing in eight, eight different places. I, I don't know exactly how, how they've done it, but uh, some manufacturer told me that they've been able to uh, work out those those false positives, like like for sunlight, and be able to, be able to uh, eliminate those. Um, and I, I don't know what the cut is between kind of the newer uh, multi-scan hotbox detectors and, and the older style. I'm assuming it's probably very few multi-scan, at least from, from the sounds of it uh, in the industry um, uh, uh, for the hotbox detectors. Now, acoustic bearing detectors, uh, they're also, they can be 
Uh, I don't want to call him finicky. You know, it's not it's not uh, our bread and butter to to get into words uh, to get into the details on acoustic brain effectors. But there are several things that can cause them to uh, falsely identify you know a bearing um, as being problematic when it's not. Uh, those microphones, right? They're as close as they can be to to those bearings, but uh, they're not right on top of them, right? So there's a distance factor, there's ambient noise that that comes into play. Uh, if you have a, a high impact wheel go through there, uh, this is why they include wild detectors at a lot of sites, so they can parse out when there's an actual high impact load that's messing with the uh, their algorithm and signal processing. That can affect it. Uh, brakes that are applied, you know, if you have a, a one and a half mile long train going through uh, an acoustic bearing detector site and they hit the brakes just once, you know, that can throw off a whole bunch of readings. Um, yeah, the locomotive engine can throw it off. And that's why the acoustic bearing detector manufacturers spend a lot of time in, in doing some pretty heavy signal processing to try and parse all those things out. But it, it does. Um, impede their ability to, to really kind of push the envelope in, in, in terms of how much visibility they can gain into the condition of that bearing. So yes, the, and, and traditionally this is when they've had uh, very, very loud bearings, very easy for the acoustic bearing that you detected to pick up uh, without issue. Now, some some important statistics fell from the industry too. Uh, this kind of plays out when, in when bearings are removed, that would be uh, torn down and analyzed uh, if they've been flagged. So that's an MD-11 report. Uh, consistently for decades now, uh, data has indicated that anywhere from 30 to 40% of bearings that are removed are considered non-verified. That's the MD-11 name for it, meaning that there's no damage found on that bearing. So you've got about a you know 60 to 70% hit rate on hotbox detectors uh, in terms of their efficacy in identifying bad bearings. And of course, there's the you know, I mentioned 99.5% are detected before failure, and you have obviously the 0.5% that go undetected that cause the room like like these spouse. Um, on acoustic brain detectors, um, you know, their their efficacy, they have, in order to be put in, in commissions uh, as a site, they have to reach at least a 90% accuracy level on, on 50 bearings. So they got to get 40 out of 50 right in order to be considered commissioned and, and, and usable. Now, some data that we've seen uh, presentations and conferences uh, have indicated that sometimes that, that false positive rate can, can creep up from maybe 10% when it started all the way up to 97%. So there is some variation, and we've talked with manufacturers and tried to dig into, you know, where does this happen? Is this a maintenance issue? Is this, uh, you know, something, is that just an outlier? Is there only one that's ever been out there that's had 97% false positive rate? Um, any number uh, of reasons we haven't been able to figure out why, but it's the, the data is there. They, they they are not foolproof. They're not infallible, um, and you you see that too coming out when you have customers that we've seen. They have a, a wheel set that gets flagged for an acoustic bearing detector uh, mm -hmm. as as uh, a bearing needs to be replaced, and it's only gone ten thousand miles since the last wheel set replacement, right? Uh, you have to wonder on some of those what, why that is. So that's a that's a lot of information. I'll pause there. Uh, hopefully uh, that answers some of those questions. So. No, that's all good stuff, and I appreciate it absolutely. And I know our listeners and viewers are going to appreciate that as well. So when an alert is sounded, who is it communicated to? 
and what are the next steps after they receive an alert? Yeah, so typically alerts communicate that to the locomotive engineer. Um, the locomotive engineer then uh, starts to slow down the train or, or stop the train. Now, generally, uh, the information is also communicated to a central desk at most most railroads. Uh, they have, you know, a mechanical desk that monitors all these, that does all the trending, that, that you know, puts all the information together on both hot locks and, and uh, uh, acoustic brain detectors and every other type of defect detector they have. And they'll work with the dispatcher to decide, you know, what, what the issue is and if that car needs to be set out or needs to be linked into a yard at reduced speed or, or whatever. Now, also, and when that, um, and I don't know if this happens every time, I believe it happens most every time, and certainly this was the practice previously, that uh, um, the guy in the cab is going to get out and he's going to walk back toward that problematic bearing. And he's actually going to get a number of bearings in that area using something called a temple stick. And, and you might be familiar with this from, from your car inspection days, right? Temple stick is really just a piece of wax that will melt at a specific temperature. So when it's put on the bearing, uh, that bearing is hot enough, it's going to melt that, indicating that's that's the bad bearing. And that's what's been done for, for a number of years in, in identifying bad bearings. Okay. And then once it's identified, I'm assuming the car is removed from service at that point. So how is that done? And then is there an inspection, more thorough inspection done at that point? Yeah, like I said, so it's going to be, that train's either going to be linked into a yard or it's going to, you know, obviously be at a reduced speed. Now, the bearing remains hot for at least an hour after it, after it heats up. Um, and it's going to, uh, and it's much less of an issue at a lower speed than a higher speed. Load and speed are the two things that increase bearing, bearing wear, bearing fatigue. Uh, so they're going to try and kind of link that into the closest place where they can set the car out. And, and once that's set out, then they're able to, to pull the wheel set, that bearing comes off. And like I said, it's got to go through a, a full teardown analysis. And the 11 report has to be created for it, and uh, the root cause of that failure identified. Okay. And then we'll go back now to the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, you've done a very good job of explaining um, how it potentially went wrong. We don't know yet. I don't think the report's actually out yet. But if you can just one more time walk us through that, how we presume it failed, and then you mentioned that it actually separated the wheel, I believe, uh, is what you said. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if you could just walk us through that, because I, my mind was blown when, when you said that. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a birth off during the realm. Um, so, yes, the, uh, well, I, I guess I'll get to that point, right? So, you have uh, hot box detectors as the train's progressing. It hits one. It tells it that the temperature is, you know, at, at this amount. It, it hits the second one 10 miles later. The temperature is climbing, but it's not yet enough to, to trigger the temperature threshold that would cause the train to, to derail. At that point in time, after it leaves that detector, the next detector is not for 20 miles. And so by the time it hits that third one, it's well exceeded the temperature threshold, and it's on fire at that point. And only at that time is the hot box system then send the appropriate alert as it's been you know, programmed to do. The engineer starts to slow down the train and to stop the train. And, in, and as he's doing that, the train derails. Um, that the, the burnt off drill, like I said, you, you have the bearing that heats up enough and all that uh, torque on the, on the uh, axle then causes the, the axle to, to break the journal. Um, a rail car sits on two trucks bogies outside of north america but their trucks each truck has has two axles in it and those trucks sit on four points then and those those are the bearings 
So if one of those four points is gone because now it's broken off, that then causes the truck to collapse on that one side. Obviously, uh, it then derails in any, any number of ways the load and the contents of that car can go spilling to. And if everything's moving, I don't know, speed exactly was 40, 50 miles an hour at, at that point for, for the train, right? That's going to cause a number of subsequent events in the train and the pileup uh, of, of rail cars. Wow. You know, even having been in this industry for that long, as long as I have been, that's, that's still um, shocking to me that that can be that catastrophic from a wheel bearing overheating. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, the Association of American Railroads President and CEO Ian Jeffries wrote in a recent article published in The Hill as an opinion contributor on April 8th titled, Rail Safety Requires Clear-Eyed Discourse and Real Solutions. Uh, Mr. Jeffries said some very positive data about the overall safety of our industry, but then also continued on to say that despite these truths, we must take further steps, including through voluntary actions and technologies. For instance, railroads are installing approximately 1,000 additional wayside hotbox detectors on the national network, the systems meant to mitigate against incidents such as the East Palestine, Ohio derailment. These 6,000 detectors, which you mentioned earlier, that exist today because of the industry's inherent incentive for safety and not because it was told to do so. Nonetheless, all large railroads are also lowering alert thresholds to be more cautious. And, you know, that's all good news, right? So how far apart are the average hot box detectors today? And maybe how far apart do you think they should be? Yeah, I think industry-wide, I think the FRA has said that the hot box detector spacing is at 25 now, each road is different, and I think the NS at least has come out and said um, our, our hotbox detector is based at 13.9 miles, at least on our, our core network, whatever, whatever that might be, right? Um, I think one of the most enlightening things that, that I found uh, is a study that was done with uh, TTCI and CP uh, that uh, showed, you know, Hypothetically, if we increase or, or decrease the space in pop box detectors, what's the optimal space? What should we really be, be going towards, right? Because some uh, some detectors, you know, like like the one in, in East Palestine, right? You have this this gap of 20 miles, and if there had been one in between, if you kept the 10 mile spacing, then maybe you would have caught it, and you should have caught it, and there would have sound, and you'd be able to stop the train before that before that derailment occurred. And so you've seen that work its way into to the uh, congressional bill to say let's mandate 10 mile spacing to make that work. So this study you know, from 2017 looked at it uh, and determined you could go all the way from uh, to seven and a half miles and really make no significant statistically significant improvement in derailment prevention. And they concluded the optimal spacing is 15 miles. So we should see if, if the industry average is 25 to 15 miles, our industry average is 25 and the additional hot box detectors move that down to 15 miles, do you think you see some statistically significant improvement in hot bearing derailments and, and that should decrease? However, after that, it's largely not going to occur because you still, and you're not going to get to 100% even at whether it's 15 miles or seven and a half miles, because there's still derailments that occur even a mile or less after a detector for a, for a hot box detector. So temperature really is a very late stage indication. It's it's not perfect. It's done its it's done its job, but it's not going to get that 100% derailment prevention outcome that uh, we're hoping and, and, and trying to work towards. 
Absolutely, which perfectly brings me to my next question. In the previous episode, we asked our guest this question. I'm going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> so it's the National Transportation Safety Board Chair, Jennifer Homendy, uh, was recently quoted as saying, uh, referring to derailments, that, and I quote, we call these things accidents. There is no accident. Every single event that we investigate is preventable. So do you agree that 100% of accidents and incidents are preventable? You know, so many people, and I kind of put myself in this camp too, really wish you would have said that <clears throat> because now that's been taken and misconstrued as railroads are doing a horrible job. This is completely preventable. And then you get the, the very anti-capitalist crowd say, this is all about profits. And it's really kind of taking the conversation away from anything that's, that's you know, meaningful towards, towards improvement. Yes, there are things that can be done, right? <clears throat> And, and we're in the business of trying to help uh, to, to make those those improvements. It's difficult to say this is 100% preventable uh, and, and any derailment is 100% preventable. Uh, but it's it's something that we can obviously continuously work in and, and improve at. Uh, onboard monitoring, and maybe we'll get to this some more uh, later on, but onboard monitoring really is a step change to help improve that. Uh, beyond just more detector spacing and, and having a saturated effective uh, network, that's a step change in a way that can can create those meaningful uh, improvements and and uh, reducing the risk of these hot bearing problems. Absolutely, and getting toward new technologies here. Don't worry, we're getting there. Um, the association, I'm sorry, the the um, chairman and president of the of the Association of American Railroads, Ian Jeffries, again continuing back to the article on the Hill from um, April 8th. He said the overall safety of railroads is attributable to an all the all the above approach at work each day, which includes technology like positive train control or PTC, as well as sensors that can make um, measure equipment safely, manual and technologically driven inspections and continued analysis and adaptation of protocols, particularly for hazardous material transport. Despite these truths, he continues to say, we must take further steps, including through voluntary actions and technologies. So here we are to new technology. So regarding new technologies, some consider the HBD wayside detectors to be a reactive approach um, to ensuring wheel bearing integrity what technology options are there in the industry currently that would be considered either uh, preventative and even seen as being predictive? Yeah, so the, the technology, and again, stepping back from just rail, uh, this is, you know, we deal with rotating equipment that has mass and moves at speed. That's no different than almost any other place in general industry. You know, I, I, I speak back to my experience of walking the plant floor and having to deal with pumps, motors, fans, conveyors, all sorts of things that are rotated equipment that have bearings. Um, and the approach has been in those industries to use predictive tools and really, and for now the last 30 plus years uh, to use things like vibration monitoring and have someone go around and measure the vibration, you know, periodically at, uh, at, at, on any of these bearings or on, on pump uh, and try to uh, get ahead of those, those premature indications of, of failure. And then once that's identified through those readings, whether continuous or periodic, um, you then can tell when that maintenance needs to occur before it occurs. You then schedule the maintenance, you have everything set up, so you reduce, uh, maybe you have a spare, you have a buddy pump, you have spares that you can take one down and perform maintenance on while you, you operate the other one, so that you, uh, your, your operation is not impacting the least bit, either from safety or, or from efficiency, right? So, uh, new technology like onboard monitoring 
we were able to solve two of the, two of the key problems that uh, at least that are stopping us from moving progressing further in things like hot bearing derailments in, in the rail industry. One is, is the, the, the data accuracy, right? Uh, as I said, decades consistency of 30% of the maintenance we're doing on bearings, bearings being pulled from service doesn't need to occur. You're 99.5% effective, it takes care of a lot, but it doesn't take care of everything. You still have bearings that burn off in, in less than a mile. So detectors cannot really solve that, that problem unless you go to, uh, you only maintain the equipment by some excessive amount or you do some excessive amount of train stops so that you have lower speeds to prevent anything from, from progressing to, to that point, right? So by, by putting uh, devices, uh, wireless sensors on the rail car, you're then able as close to the source as possible. You're just like that guy walking through the plant and monitoring those readings. You're able to get continuous or periodic uh, data that's, that's of very high quality. Um, now, now the second, the second thing that uh, with this is <laughs> now being able to uh, schedule that maintenance so far ahead of time. Like I said, in, in, in a plant setting, you have the parts available on hand. Your, your downtime, if any, is, is minimized. Everybody's set up. It's done. When you do it that and you're prepared, it's done as safely as possible. If you've got guys out on, on the side of the track or, or swapping out wheel sets, right, that's, that's less safe than if you have a prepared facility where everybody's set up and ready to go. Those two improvements, you know, predictive indication, as well as that pre-planned maintenance, um, really kind of bring, can bring the rail industry up to what the rest of the general industry has been doing for decades now. And then you're able to have the most efficient, safest operation possible. And, and with new technology, do you see, um, or do you know, I should say, does the AAR require them to go through an approval process? I know for a lot of components and things, it's a two-year plan, maybe even longer than that, that the approval process that the Tinkar Committee and others um, require. So is this something, this technology, would it also have to go through the same approval process? Yeah, uh, so it's, it's referred to by the AAR as Remote Monitoring Equipment, or RME. Uh, I mean, remote monitoring equipment, at least in the form of GPS trackers, has been around for, for decades now. First started coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, TIH, PIH cars, and then more hazardous toxic cars were the first to, to really get it. And, and broadly speaking, that's about as far as, as they've got. So it's not that we don't do any onboard monitoring of rail cars, but onboard condition monitoring of rail cars is, is very new. The AR recognizing this, as many sensor companies uh, have, have started coming out the last few years, uh, with the, the decreased cost of the technology, making it much more attractive and cost-effective uh, option for, for rail car owners and railroads to equip the, the rail cars with. They've now finally updated the, the standard, which is known as S2045, which then governs all the things you need to do to be able to be approved and to have devices uh, running on rail cars. Well, believe it or not, Byron, we're nearing the end of our episode already. We've gone through a lot of great stuff, and thank you so much. I wanted to ask, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up for today? Yeah, I mean, one that I've, I've really kind of been beating drum since the East Palestine derailment, you know, um, the way that we approach maintenance, and we talked about it thoroughly here, the way we approach maintenance in, in the rail industry and derailment prevention, uh, it, was, it was a head-scratcher for me when I came to the industry, to be honest. We allow these massive 143 ton pieces of metal moving in a fast clip, you know, like a, a car on a highway. We allow them to get to the point where a critical component like a bearing can fail. 
And then we rely on three things. One, that the wayside detection system is going to pick up on invariant. Two, that that's going to be able to be communicated to the local cab, to the person who can act on it. And three, that that person who then acts on it, it makes the, the, the appropriate decision, receives the communication, and can prevent that derailment. Just boggles the mind that, that we do it this way when, like I said, in the rest of general industry, all this is uh, planned and, and predicted ahead of time so that you avoid all of, all of these incidents. So, you know, we're, we're working at home towards a future where we use onboard monitoring, conditional monitoring, the wheels, the bearings, the trucks, other things, be able to get that, that make the schedule at the right place, the right time, the lowest cost possible, and avoid, you know, derailments uh, especially, as well as train stops online and allow trains to keep moving fluidly. From, from a, a, a high level standpoint, that's where the industry could go if they, if they choose to, and that's the most effective way of, of really using this realm as its wake up calling East Palestine as a way of pushing the industry into the next level in terms of both safety and efficiency. Great. Thank you so much. And where can folks reach you if they'd like to ask you some more questions? So uh, we're homeindustrial.com's our website. Uh, there's plenty of you to, to contact us there. You can reach out to me directly byron b-y-r-o-n at homeindustrial.com always happy i'm sure i'm going to tick off several people i'm good at doing that with some of my analysis and the data that we have always happy to have uh, uh, a correction from from people with a different viewpoint uh as we seek just to, to move the industry along and, and provide the most uh, most effective most objective viewpoint out there so we're at all the industry conferences to come talk to us. Love to love to learn more about uh, how the world looks like from your side. Absolutely, and that's how we grow, right? Was by having conversations with one another and learning from one another. So there's nothing wrong with that. Byron, thank you again so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate the information you've shared with us on such a very important topic. So thank you, and would you be willing to join us again sometime in another episode? Absolutely. Thank you for you, It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Byron. And turning for just a minute to our veterans in the industry, I know that you hear in our introduction all the time that we want to recognize you, and we do. I absolutely love our veterans. I love the folks that are currently enlisted and serving as well. We've got some pretty neat episodes coming up. I, I don't want to give away everything just yet, so you're going to have to tune in to see what's coming. But we are going to have some episodes coming up. Um, cater to you, our veterans. We love you. We want, to, we want to focus on you, and I think you're really going to enjoy what we put out there. Um, also, I want to just say a, a little bit about our anchor sponsor, the Revolution Rail Group. So it's a consulting and brokering firm in the rail car industry. So if anyone's out there that's needing assistance with your current rail car uh, repair, cleaning, transload facilities, or your merger and acquisition specialist, and you're looking for some guidance, feel free to reach out to us. And also in the brokering world, if you're looking to buy, sell, lease, or sublease rail cars, feel free to reach out to us as well at therevolutionrailgroup.com. And with that, folks. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to having you with us on the next episode. God bless. Make it a great day and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the American Railroading Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on a future episode or want to support or sponsor the show, please visit our website at AmericanRailroading.net. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on the American Railroading Podcast.